This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Well, let me get to the the panel because that's why we're here, and we've got a lot to get to for the next little while. And we'll go ladies first tonight. Um, a first timer on the show, yeah, who we've been dying to have for a long time. But it just never worked out until now, so thankfully. Uh, Sarah Kane, a familiar voice here on CHML, a reporter and a someone you hear every single day on this station. <laughs> every single day, which is, uh, thanks for coming in. Glad oh, you could do thanks this. thanks for having me. And next to her, a guy who, uh, man, he's a veteran now. He's one of our most veteran players, <laughs> uh, Scott Urquhart, former CHCH reporter. That's where you probably know him from. Now the owner-operator of irkedfreelance.ca or dot .com. Dot com. Yep, they, I think both the of them would get to you. I think if you do CA, it also, I checked it today. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, if you go to irked, U-R-K-E-D, freelance.com, you will see Scott posing at a part of Hamilton where I asked him on the way in today if it was moments <laughs> before he was mugged. Ah, oh, come on. This is the hammer. <laughs> Nothing like that ever happens no. here. And what I learned, what I didn't know, was that Scott is actually a black belt in seven different forms of martial <laughs> arts. So he can he can kill people with his bare hands or something like <laughs> something that. Something like that. Something with, like that. With this thumb, yes. Yeah, yeah it's like the Spockian thing. <laughs> in there and that down goes the person. So, you know, he was, uh, he was totally fine. Um we are going to deal with, as I say, a bunch of different things tonight, but I want to start with this because I, it's not a new story per se, although it just started to, this week that the hot lanes, the, uh, what are they called, high occupancy toll lanes that previously have been, you had to have two people in the car to drive in them, and then during the Pan Am Games, you had to have three people in the car to drive in them, but now the, the government, as everybody knows, the province has said, if you pay 180 bucks a month and you win the lottery to win one of these. We're going to sell off a bunch of these things so you can be just bombing along in the fast lanes by yourself in the car. What do you think of that, Sarah? Is it a, first of all, is it a good idea from the government to be able to do this as a... I, guess, I mean, I guess it's a money raiser. It's not a lot yeah, of money. But I mean, it, it's interesting because for a long time, it's really the focus has been on environmentally friendly. Like, this is why... We have to do this, but now you're one person and you can just pay your way. Which is funny because the, the government, and I mean, Scott Thompson did about two hours today on the on the show about the liberal win government. What they're being hammered for the hardest right now is the hydro and the environmental policies that are mm-hmm. costing taxpayers so much money. And then you're right. They turn around and say, okay, we're going to kill you with every form of tax we can possibly levy. But, oh, by the way, we'll let you drive a car by yourself in the fast lane designed not to do this, Scott. Yeah, it seems, uh, it does seem ridiculous. I think maybe Andrea had it right when she called them Lexus lanes instead of uh, high occupancy vehicle mm-hmm. lanes. But, I mean, really, how much is it going to bring in? If the if the stats are correct at the moment, you've got about 200 people paying or uh, 500 people paying about 200 bucks a piece that's what a hundred thousand dollars and you know is that is that really going to make a difference to the wind government how much did we blow in the billion the uh, <laughs> in the hydro in the, the nuclear plants yeah a hundred thousand bucks doesn't go a long way no no it doesn't seem to make any sense and before you could use uh, the HOV lanes with two people in the car now you have to have three people in the car mm-hmm. I think a lot of commuters it's not too hard to find a second person to go along with you finding two people that are going to the same place maybe some kind of a challenge for some of the commuters. What I'm shocked by, Sarah, is according to stories that I've read, they had 500 people who were able to get these passes, but only 3,400 people applied. I I mean, I thought, if nothing else, there would be a lot of people applying for this just because it's 
convenient, especially if you're commuting from Toronto to or Hamilton to Toronto or something like that. There's not many people even showing interest. Yeah, I was going to say commuting to Toronto. I mean, that's the biggest headache. And again, when we talk real estate, everyone pushing this way. I mean, that's a commute that people are going to start thinking oh, well, a few extra bucks to get that lane and be able to use it, then I'm zooming to work. But that's interesting. I didn't actually know that that was the kind of response that they were getting from this. Yeah, I didn't either until today. And I thought, Scott, that that's just a kind of a pathetically low number, which suggests really blah. Yeah, it's paltry. And and maybe what else it suggests is this is bad policy. Mm -hmm. Uh, There aren't that many people that are interested. Uh, There aren't that many people who are willing to pay. And uh, it's not helping. I don't think it's going to help at all with uh, the, the congestion heading into Toronto. But let's broaden this a little bit. And this is why I kind of wanted to bring this up today. Because, again, this isn't a new story per se. People have heard this, although it's, again, just getting rolling today. But is this, do you think this is, in a way, a trial balloon for other forms of two-tiered services to see? Let's see what, what, how this goes. Let's see how this looks. And then decide if maybe, hey, we can do two-tier healthcare. We can do two-tier library cards. We can do two-tier community centers. We can do two-tier whatever. Do you get the sense that maybe this was a, let's see how this does and see if it works really well and we can, and, and if we get a lot of flack or a lot of blowback? Yeah, that's possible. They always like to do a bit of a soft rollout with something to see, you know, what the response is. And based on what you're saying, it may be indicative that maybe they shouldn't be moving forward on some other dramatic things. Well, nothing gets people's backs up uh, more quickly, I think, at least, than feeling like they are being treated as other citizens, second-class citizens, especially these days when uh, there's a real movement against elitist kind of privilege. So it's going to make it difficult for them. And uh, nothing makes people faster than seeing somebody else get a privilege that they can't afford. And I, I don't think that's going to roll out in any other form. If it rolls out in healthcare, uh, I, I think you'll see the defeat of the government very quickly. Do you, though? And, and the reason I ask is because I'm, I'm not as convinced that two-tier healthcare is a terrible thing. And here's why. Because, and I've, we've talked about this before. If you can get a bunch of people who are willing to spend copious amounts of money to have a treatment done, that's tax dollars that are going in to run things and that's taking people out of the system, out of the, out of the queue so other people can get in there. And, and I agree, Scott, exactly with what you're saying. People don't like to feel like they are the poor cousins, Mm -hmm. but if it was couched in the right way, would it not be sellable? I don't think so in this country. I think that to most people in this country, that represents the thin edge of the wedge towards full privatization of the healthcare system. And it's so ingrained in Canadians now, uh, poll after poll after poll has said it's one of the things that makes us uniquely Canadian, we feel, uh, even though there are other countries in the world that have, you know, uh, complete medical care. But it's very important to Canadians, and I don't think the idea of privatizing any of it is going to sit well with the, the majority of them. Do we not already, though, have some health services that you have to pay extra for? Yeah, true. Some tests... Uh, I know uh, prostate tests, that sort of thing, you do have to pay extra for. But that people seem to be willing, like a prescription, to pay for that. It, it's when uh, you get into the mainstream healthcare items mm-hmm. that uh, you start to get resistance from the public. Well, I mean, Sarah, we have we have hockey players, baseball players, football players who get injured in a game. And their teams, the Blue Jays, the Leafs, the Ticats, whatever, their teams pay for them to go and get MRIs done and to jump the queue. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we don't hear any real... Is it just that we've become used to that, so we're okay with it, that we just don't think of it anymore? Or do we say, well, no, that's important because the Blue Jays have to win for us to be happy. I mean, yeah. what, why, do, why are we okay with them doing that but with what Scott says, but if, you know, if your next door neighbor who happens to win the lottery says, I want to go and jump the queue, ah, I don't think I want to let Joey go and have his test before mine. Yeah, I'm trying to remember who it was. Uh, uh, the, some team, maybe it was hockey, you probably know, Scott. But I remember if it's a high profile name, all of a sudden people get really up in arms about you jumping the queue. I mean, that's what happens. It's usually sports as well. And, and we see that, too, about, like, paying for extra services. If you're an athlete, you know that there's a lot of things that you have to go through and pay for that is that is just not covered. So there's a lot of services out there that you do have to, and it's they can be a pretty penny. Because, la- I mean, last night or the day before, Josh Donaldson went for a hip MRI. Now, if you were Joe Schmo, your wait for an MRI, I had to go for an MRI, and it took several months before I could get in, and then I got a cancellation. Josh Donaldson got in like that, and you know what? Everybody that I heard talking, now I wasn't raising the topic specifically, but everyone was like, oh good, he got in, we know he's, he's fine. So everybody was thrilled that Josh Donaldson got his MRI really fast. And yet there are people with cancer who are waiting for an MRI for months and we go out of our minds about that, but nobody seems to have a problem with that. No, it's true. And uh, I don't know that I can offer any explanation for that whatsoever, um, but it does seem like those organizations, sports organizations especially, people almost come to expect that as the norm mm. rather than anything extraordinary. What about if we were to make, if we were to talk about a two-tiered healthcare system, but we were to make the top tier so incredibly pricey that even the people who are really rich would say, well, that's, I got to think about whether or not I'm going to do that. But if I do, we're actually putting a, I mean, let's say you have to have an MRI and you say, fine, you can jump the queue. But it's a hundred grand to get in. If I'm really rich, I go to my friends in the United States and get the first open hospital there is. But if someone's willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars and that's money flowing right into our health system, presumably that the government doesn't filter it off to do another one of their stupid ideas at every level of government. But, but if that was the case, what do you say, Sarah? I mean, someone someone's willing to pay a hundred grand for a service that they could wait and get. And let's say you get 10 of those. There's a million dollars going into that hospital. That's pretty good. You can see the benefit, but back to Scott's point, people do not like feeling like, you know, that the second tier citizens, speaking of tiers, people don't want to be second class. They don't want to feel that, you know, money talks. They don't, they want, they don't want to feel like that if, if that's, you know, they have the same ailment. I mean, it's still not going to fly with, I, I think, just, you know, Joe Blow. I think you're, I mean, I, listen, I, t- I tend to think you're right. I, I see the benefit of that kind of thing. I mean, I do, because I, we're so hurting for tax dollars for all these things that I can see the benefit of saying, let's, if you want to pay, if you really want to pay, okay, you know, we'll c- you got to come in at three in the morning. We're going to bring a doctor in special for you or a, a clinician or whoever. If you really want to pay, we'll get you in. But I, I, there are there would be a lot of people. I agree with both of you who would throw up a a big stink. And I don't know. And again, we go back to these tollings. I don't know if the reason that people are upset about it is because they truly feel like it's unfair, or if they feel like they are supposed to feel like it's unfair, right? I mean, do, do, are you if you're driving along, are you really going to be bothered if you see a single driver? blasting along in the in the fast lane if you know they've paid for that and they won a lottery so good for them are you really going to be bothered or are you going to be bothered because you know i'm supposed to be bothered by that because i know that's not right 
I feel like we're bothered now. I don't know if you've yeah. ever been in the car with someone, but you see like someone cheating the system, yes. so to yeah. speak, and one person blowing by you in that lane, whether they paid or not, I think it is going to make you a little bit upset. Yeah, the first thing uh, you think of is, I wish a cop was here. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look at this guy. Exactly. Yeah. Saw one on the way to the Pan Am Games last yeah. summer. I had to go to Toronto to cover something. And yeah. we're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic. And they're, And I'm positive that I saw like five people. Now, maybe they had a spouse sleeping in the back seat, laying down. I don't know. But I saw one person. I was like, you got to be kidding me. And yes, you get you get burned about it. But is that, are we, re- I, I mean, I guess we are really upset about it. I don't well, I think know. we should go back and talk about why uh, governments are scrambling for tax dollars and why they're so desperate and hurting. And, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about this on your show before. And one of the reasons why is that corporate taxes are at an all-time low in our history. And it's almost taboo to raise corporate taxes on anything these days. They used to pay more than 50% of their profit to the tax, uh, to the Treasurer of Ontario and to the tax system. Now they pay less than 19%, one of the lowest rates in the world. And we're wondering why. Why are we so short on ta- tax dollars? It's, it's not hard to figure out. Well, I mean, there's one answer. The other is that governments are trying to do everything for everybody, and some of these things are exceedingly costly and not well managed, and we just flush money down the toilet. And you go back and, okay, with what your point is, Scott, fair point, but we also go back to the days of, let's say, Bill Davis, when Mm -hmm. when Ontario was humming along and we had money flowing in and we were in surpluses, and, and you say, wait a second, were we doing, were we trying to do all this stuff, or were we concentrating on the things that were essential services and really doing those well, and also not having, let's be honest, not having unions that are holding governments hostage for more and more money. There's a lot of different factors that play into this whole thing. Public sector unions. Public sector unions, that's what I'm talking about. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of factors now, but I look at this this HOT, I keep wanting to call them HOV, but HOT lanes, and I think, you know, as much as there didn't seem to be a lot of interest and as much as it's not a lot of money, it wouldn't shock me if the wind or government or any other government came along now and said, wait, there were 3,400. I'll tell you what, we'll sell you all one of these licenses. Mm-hmm. Well, it's only 3,400. We'll give you all one and then we'll just charge you 200 bucks and, and there's a little more money. I, I, I mean, I, I, I can see it. I can see that coming down the, pardon the pun, down the road. It's um, <laughs> that we're just going to do that every single way we can find a few extra bucks. And you know what the oddity will be? All these people will pay for it and that lane will get clogged up and then no one will want to do it. We'll screw it up. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back with Sarah and Scott right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me read you something. Uh, A column, a bit of a column today from Andrew Coyne in the National Post talking about Canada Post and the problems with what's going on right now because Canada Post is just bleeding money. Anyway, here's what he says. This is not new. The decline has been going on for decades. Saturday, Saturday delivery was the first to go. The overnight delivery standard was next. As of 1986, two days within the same city was acceptable. Over much of the country in the years that followed, home delivery was eliminated in favor of community mailboxes. In effect, much of the public now deliver the mail to themselves. You would think then that it would be a matter of some urgency to the post office political masters to somehow cajole, cajole it into doing the job we pay it to do. Yet, whenever Canada Post comes in for one of its periodic public reviews, the focus is always the same. Not how can we improve mail service for Canadians, but how can we make life easier for Canada Post? Sarah, 
first of all, do you get much mail anymore? No, do you, do I get you, maybe like one or two letters a, a week, a bill. Okay, and, and a lot junk of mail. and a lot of junk mail. Yeah, you get a lot of coupons. <laughs> Plenty for, of that for stuff. Scott, how about you? Do you get a lot of mail? Yeah, it's the same uh, same deal. It's uh, it's either direct mail uh, advertising or um, almost nothing at all. Maybe a bit the odd bill, but most of that's done online now too. Okay, and I, and and I'm in the same ballpark. We get a few bills that you still can't maybe get done online. We have a couple of magazines that we subscribe to that show up. But it's not like the old days when they would come to your door and you would hear the mailbox, the, the mail slot open and thump because, you know, 25 pieces of mail fell on your floor. There's not much. And so if this was a private sector business, if this was a company that was operating in the private sector, that was losing money, that was seemingly out of date, that was not able to sustain itself, Sarah, would we not, would just, done. Would we not just say, hey, it's, this is Darwinianism. Mm-hmm, yeah, Strongest survive. Yeah, we see this time and time again. It will be done. And, and you know, over the, the past few years, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, modernizing the services and more parcels and, and trying to find a way to keep it to keep it going, to resuscitate Desperately it. Desperately trying to find a way Desperately, to... Desperately. Yeah. But I don't think they're quite there. I mean, as you mentioned, like, who gets mail anymore? Who even gets that many parcels that can sustain this kind of activity or sustain them as a whole? They talk about it now. It's like they finally come to terms with having that conversation. Like, we don't have it. But even in the last election, we had this as in a topic of for discussion on the, that about prioritizing the mail service. That we have to be able to, I mean, Scott, it was part of the federal election campaign. Yeah. That the mail service was still, we got it, the, the federal liberals where we, the conservatives wanted to cut back. The liberals say, no, no, we're going to go back to daily service and on and on and on. It I'm not was, sure how much that had to do with... Uh, with the home delivery um, controversy, though. I mean, supporting Canada Post was easy under those circumstances. But uh, I'm not sure if that was the lure or not. I I wish I could remember um, which Scandinavian country it is right now. And I read this just recently. Um, They are considering alternative rules for their postal workers so that they don't just deliver the mail anymore. They do other things. And one of the things they were considering was uh, social service visits to elderly people in the like community. just dropping in to say hi, yeah, see if you're exactly. alive, basically. Exactly, yeah, checking on them, making sure they're they were you know alive and well, uh, talking to them so they you know didn't feel isolated and lonely. That was one of the things under consideration. Well, my feeling is if you're running a postal service and it's getting to that point where you just you're looking for stuff for them to do that has nothing to do with the mail or delivering post. Yeah, it's probably time to shut it down, don't you think? Well, that that's what I don't understand why we and again, if you're a postal serv if you're a postal worker listening to this, I don't want you to lose your job. I have no interest in you losing your job. This is not about, hey, let's fire all the postal workers. No, we want everyone employed. But if you are doing something that can't be sustained, why are we bending our we're bending over backwards to prop up an industry that doesn't seem to have a place in modern society? I, I just, I, I don't understand why we feel, I guess, why we feel that Canada Post is that essential a service that we have to keep it alive even if there's no call for it or not much call for it. Yeah, is it so embedded in Canadian history that we feel like we just need to have it as a pillar? I, I don't understand either. I mean, from a business point of view, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah, and especially in a time of tight tax dollars when it's siphoning money, like bleeding money constantly. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to justify no matter what. I mean, we had milkmen once upon a time. They went the way of the dodo. We said, yeah. no, you know, we don't need milk delivered to our door by someone. 
anymore. Bread men too. Bread men yeah. and di- diaper service. Maybe do we still have diaper services? I don't even know if we have diaper services anymore. But it just it just strikes me that it's we are trying to keep something afloat for reasons that I don't really understand. And I, I mean, I understand the idea of protecting jobs because there's a lot of people that work for Canada Post. But your idea, I mean, your idea of visiting seniors, I'm sure, I, I have no doubt, in fact, I know a few postal workers, lovely people. Do all postal workers possess the personality that you want to throw open your door and have yeah. them dropping in on grandma? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, are we now but, vetting postal workers yeah. to, to go yeah, door to door? They have to pay, pass some sort of a sociology test. Before they can, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. We, we've had, we discussed it this week on the show. The, someone has suggested the post office should be delivering pot when it becomes legalized in this country, which comes to the point where we are going to have to give our postal workers and guns. Because you, if you know that a postman is carrying a bag full of pot, he's going to get robbed. It's just, it's, it, it's inevitable. The post where they've said, let's have them run banks. Well, why do we, why are we trying so hard to find a case for something that doesn't seem to have a case? Especially when you're seeing professors from across the country, Ian Lee comes to mind from uh, Carleton, I believe, and he's he's written extensive papers on that there isn't a case for Canada Post anymore. And why, why are we doing this? Why are we holding on to this? We don't seem to listen to the people who are analyzing this bit by bit. Even though it's something we all know anyways. Why do you think we feel, I mean, is this just a traditional thing? Like, is it, if we let Canada Post go, if if it did fade into oblivion, is it because we feel like, well, there's a part of our life that's gone? Like, are we, are we, are we holding on to it because we feel some sort of historic nostalgia? Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, I don't know. When, When was the last time you went out and bought a book of stamps? You know, to send something to to almost anyone. Well, probably a I, year ago, and we least. still have a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, honestly, we yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. It, it's making less and less sense to me all the time. And uh, you know, as much as I as you would like to support workers and jobs in this country, there's got to be some justification for the work, especially when there are competing private enterprises that can do almost everything. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, I mean, we have we have courier services that can deliver packages and other things that can deliver packages. And I'm willing to bet you that if Canada Post were to slide off the back rail, some of these places would say, yeah, we could deliver mail. We could, we could do mail. We could send mail just the same way we do everything else. We'll get it to your house in two or three days. Direct but mail. Yeah, no doubt. Is, is, it, is it really more complicated to do mail than to do a package? I don't know. Maybe that's why uh, there is some hesitancy. I don't know what the uh, Canadian Direct Mail Association, how they feel about all this. But obviously, the postal system is very important to the way they do business right now and their business model. But, I mean, if that's the only demand for it, like you say, there are other avenues to, to get the job done without bleeding public money. If you, when you do send a letter or when you are expecting a letter now, do you have the expectation that that letter will arrive the next day? No. No. What, what, what's, what's a reasonable time that you would think? If, if, if someone was mailing you something, what's a, what's a reasonable time frame to get that now? I'd say about 48 hours. If it was posted on Monday, I might expect to get it by Wednesday. What if, what if, what if they said we can, what if a private company said we could get it to you in five days? Would you be able to live with that? Probably. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, I guess it depends on the nature of the mail, but if it was really that important, I'm sure you would find other avenues to do it anyways. Well, if, I mean, if it was so important that you had to get it, if it's a, if it's a prescription or something, I mean, you could do it through a courier service and they would do it within 
for of 24 hours. But I'm just saying mm-hmm. is as a general on, on a least important for a courier company, if they said, listen, the mail, we've got some stuff. It's the least important thing. We'll get it to you within five days. By and large, would you think people would lose their minds if that happened? No, no. I think, no. yeah, within a week is completely reasonable for a general piece of mail. And do you not think most companies would be able to probably do that? Oh, I, I don't doubt it. But uh, as I say, there may be a business model that I don't know anything about here that relies on tax dollars to, to make it profitable. I, mm. I really don't know. But even, and again, I'm not, it, it really sounds, I know it really sounds like I'm lobbying for the abolition of Canada Post. That's not, we're just <laughs> discussing, we're, no, we're just discussing this. But if you were to say, okay, even if I don't even know, what's the stamp cost today? Anyone know? No. Good let's, let's say it's a buck. Let's say it's a yeah. dollar. And you say, okay, for private to send a, the Canada Post is gone. We are going to put up, now you can send a letter, but it's going to cost you a dollar fifty. Well, for most people, for the amount of letters they send, that extra 50 cents times, let's say, 10 over the course of a year is vastly less than the taxes they're paying to prop up Canada For Post. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, if someone from Canada Post can make a compelling case that says, here is why we have to exist, and here is why you can't let us just be sent into the oblivion of being picked up by everybody else, I'm, I'm going to listen. But you know what? The whole problem is we haven't heard that case made. Not yeah. at all. No. Not close. If no. you can be innovative in your approach to this, then yeah, you might start having people listen a little bit. But I mean, even our own governments don't want to use Canada Post anymore for things like, uh, you know, income tax refunds and, and benefit checks and what have you, disability checks. They don't go through the mail anymore. They go through direct deposit for the most part. They're sure. Around, yeah. Uh, so if our own government doesn't even have use for Canada Post anymore, what are we doing? You know what? You know what our own government uses the mail for now? So you get your Christmas calendar from your MP every year. <laughs> That's probably the one thing they send out. And I bet and I bet MPs offices, I bet they have huge mail budgets. Yeah. Honestly, I bet yeah. they do that they don't that they don't get used. It's 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 a baffling one to me because I just every day that we hear about a new proposal of something that we're trying to prop up Canada Post, the answer I always come back to is why is it so important to prop up Canada Post? Yeah, somebody, you're right. Somebody needs to make the argument if it's there to be made. Mm-hmm. And if it's and if there is one, I am more than open to hearing it. But delivering pot or running a bank or someone suggested that we can have them do things like a public version of the um, the dollar lending places that everyone's all upset about. We, you know, so uh, it's just it's just grabbing at straws now. What can we find? Let's find anything. Let's have mm. let's have the Canada Post do babysitting. You'll drop off the mail and we'll, hey, we can stay for a couple hours and watch your kid. Well, you, I don't know if that's... Um, Got a peace bond for that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you might need one. Yeah. We will uh, We'll take a quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back with Sarah Kane and Scott Urquhart right after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I mean, we. This is this is where it all happens. Right across from Westdale High School in downtown Hamilton. If you're If you're ever driving by, Come in for the tour. It's, it only takes about four hours. There's a gift shop at the end. There's not, is there, Sarah? No. What, no. what would no. we no. give out? You know? <laughs> Wonderful <something>. AM 900 <laughs> coffee mugs. That's right. Uh, yeah. There's, there's got to be a... I mean, if we're talking about saving Canada Post and finding ways, there's got to be a way you can drum up some cash <laughs> with the CHML tours. Yeah, what are we doing? Don't Jeez. feed... Yeah, but have Ted Michaels behind glass with a sign that says, don't feed the animal. <laughs> that sounds inviting. That, uh, you know, there's, there's things we could do here. This may be one of the strangest stories that uh, that I've heard in a while. 
The um, there is a tattoo artist who is suing the makers of a video game company, an NBA video game that's being developed, because the tattoo artist did some work on LeBron James's arm and a few other players' arms. He's a pretty good tattoo artist, I guess, pretty well known among the NBA glitterati. And when they went to put the video game together, they were very, very specific with, you know, the the tattoos reflected exactly what was there. And so the tattoo artist is now suing the video game company, saying, that tattoo is my intellectual property. I drew that, so if you're going to put that into your video game, you owe me money. And the video game company is saying, wait a second, that tattoo is on LeBron James and the other players. It's their property. So, Scott, if you were to get the, the the one you've always dreamed of, the shoulder blade to shoulder blade <laughs> giant tattoo with a skull head yeah. and a snake coming through the eyeballs. And a couple of wings, yeah. Yep. yeah. If you were to get that tattoo that you've always imagined, who owns that tattoo? Who owns the rights to the art of that tattoo? Well, I can see both both sides of the argument, but once once the property has been sold, I think your, your claims upon its, uh, uh, you know, sort of ownership are gone. It belongs to whoever you sold it to. So I think the NBA has a stronger case here, but I can see somebody saying that's original artwork. It's my original artwork and I deserve recognition for it. What if it was a photo? Well, Sarah, before we do that, what do you think? No, I was just going to say if it's, you know, do you have a legal stamp on this, especially if it's an original work? It's not just something you're recreating time and time again on a million different people. If this is something, it is art. I mean, it's art that you've created. It may be on someone else's body, but I don't know what the, you know, the legal specifics around that would be, but it it is their property in a sense. Well, Well, Sotheby's Sotheby's sells a a masterpiece to somebody out there in in Japan or Germany or whatever, Mm -hmm. and that ends up in a documentary of, uh, you know, somebody going through these fabulous houses of Europe, and uh, you see the painting. Does Sotheby's have a claim to say, that was our painting, that was, Mm -hmm. and you don't, can't do that? I don't know. And I think about songwriting too, you know. Songwriting, perfect example. But what if, what if, okay, I mean, the Mona Lisa, I think is... uh, I don't, I mean, it's up in the Louvre. I don't know who actually, I don't even know who owns. I know, I know who drew it, but, or painted it, but I don't know who owns it. But let's say there was a private owner for the Mona Lisa Mm -hmm. or Da Vinci was still alive and everybody wanted to make Mona Lisa t-shirts based on an actual exact replica of that. Does he not have a case to say, no, that's, I know I sold that painting. But that's still my art. I still, that's still my belongings. Or, or frankly, the person who, I guess the person who bought it has some saying that I, I find it fascinating because the idea is I've never considered the fact that an artist, a tattoo artist, even though that you call them a tattoo artist, I never really thought of them as an artist. Yeah. Like in the traditional sense. It's funny because in this specific case, I feel as though if I was the one who had created that piece of art and then watched this video game or had seen it played, if they did a poor job of recreating it, I'd be a lot more upset yeah. about yeah, it no than kidding, yeah. not just nailing it. But you, you mentioned music. So what would yeah. happen if they were to take a song and put it on the video game, even though LeBron James had somehow taken ownership of that song? Would you just be able to play that music? Or would you say, you no, the, the artist, you would have to pay. Yeah. And I mean, there have been T-shirts in the past uh, of Andy Warhol Prince or uh, sure. Peter Max or something like that. And yeah, the the rights to that go back to... Uh, War, Warhol's estate. So, yeah, there is an argument to be made on that side of belief, but is it the strongest one? 
I just, again, it comes back that I, tattoo are some of the stuff, if you see some of the really good tattoos, and I'm not a tattoo guy, I don't have, you don't, Sarah, you said you put in the break, you don't have any? Nope. nope. Scott, you don't nope. have any? So we're, we are tattooless in this studio <laughs> right now, which actually makes this probably one of the more unique rooms on planet <laughs> Earth right now, <laughs> yeah. that you have three people and not one tattoo. Saw a stat today that 20% of North Americans, I'm assuming that means adults, and 40% of millennials have at least one tattoo. And I believe that because you see them everywhere, everywhere, and, and even on people that you would never expect to find a tattoo. Yeah, you see these ads now of like a, a doctor, and then the sleeves rolled up, and they have a complete sleeve of tattoos underneath. So it's kind of interesting trying to break that whole idea of, of who has a tattoo and, and that kind and, of stereotyping and how they're perceived. Mm-hmm. And you say stereotyping. We yeah. we dealt with a person one time, a business person who. It was a woman who was wearing long sleeves and a mock turtleneck, and it was quite warm out. And someone else then told us, well, you know why, right? No. And they, I mean, has she been burned or something? No, she's got sleeves of tattoos. And I guess there's the perception that if you've got tons of tattoos that you're a biker chick or something. I mean, I don't don't know how the, is that perception changing, do you think? Um, Yeah, I think it has substantially. I mean, at one time, you're right. uh, You know, you were in the armed forces, you were a biker or or a prostitute or something (laughs) like that and to have a tattoo. And and that changed, I think, very drastically uh, probably in the last 20 years. You no longer have to be an inmate to get a tattoo? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the Russian inmates do it with a purpose. I mean, that's their life story printed on their, their skin, right? But... Uh, it's not the same here. And, and I think to some extent, um, we may be seeing sort of the peak of the popularity of tattoos. And all that just may be a perception on my point. Part that it's it. hit such a spot of being such a part of being cool that it's almost stopped being Uncool. cool now. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. The, the tide has turned. Yeah, absolutely. You hear commercials now too for, you know, tattoo removal all the time, even from people with tattoos, whether Mm. that's to make room for more tattoos, maybe one that you like, (laughs) I don't know. But there's that. I mean, Kat Von D is a popular tattoo artist herself. She also has a makeup line. And I I believe one of them is marketed specifically as a cover up for tattoos. If wherever you're going to work or wherever it may be that you don't maybe want to show everyone that that's what you have on your body. We, I mean, my wife would be probably the one of the last people I would ever expect would ever get a tattoo. And years ago, we were down in Miami, and she had been watching that show Miami Inc., which mm-hmm. was a tattoo thing. And we're wandering along the street, and there's the storefront. And she said, if, I don't know the guy's name, if the star of the show, who was the tattoo artist, if he's in there, I'm getting something. And I was like... What are you talking about? Well, like really little, but I'm just getting something mm-hmm. from him. It wasn't there. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> but he, other than him or something, to get back to this point, I don't really, I don't think of tattoo artists as artists in the true sense. I know they are the same way writers, Scott, I mean, mm-hmm. you have your freelance, I mean, the way writers or the way musicians, they are artists, but I just don't think of it like that. It's because it seems as though, well, quite literally, you draw your thing and it walks away and you're on to the next one and it's gone and whoever's I mean I don't even know if tattoo artists see their work ever again yeah it's like this living breathing piece of art though that is on someone it's on someone uh, yeah that sometimes are visible and sometimes aren't but aren't but uh, and I think there's a wide range too I mean I I think there are a few standard designs that uh, you can roll off a thousand or ten thousand of them and there are the the rare tattoo artists that are really artists and creating original original work as they go, but they, I think, are few and far between or 
to some extent. Yeah, I, I, I find this story fascinating because it just has never dawned on me that you could do your work, see it walk out the door, and then say, but that's my property. Because yeah. in a way, what you're saying is, I partially own LeBron James. If you, I mean, if, yeah. if, if, you're, if you've done the tattoo on him or whoever you've done it on, I partially own you. And we never say that was the case. And would it be, would it be, let's say you did uh, branding. I know people do branding. Would you say, okay, I own, the whole thing is just weird. It's just weird to me that you would say somehow that I could sue because that's my art and you can't show it unless you have my permission. Yeah. I can't replicate it without uh, permission. If you have a tattoo out there that you think that your tattoo artist should be suing for rights. Let us know. <laughs> I'd love to talk to your tattoo artist. I'd like to believe, see it. Yeah. I'd love to see it too. Yeah. Provided it's in a place where we're actually allowed to see it. You're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900 CHML. Uh, next to me, Scott Urquhart, a veteran here. Now the owner, operator, proprietor of irkedfreelance.com. You can go and get all your freelance writing needs and Yep. Other freelance stuff done. Yeah, other freelance Whether stuff. Whether writing or cleaning eaves troughs. Well, I don't especially know especially good at the stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and next to him, a, a first-timer, but uh, now that an hour has gone by, she's no longer a rookie. Um, she <laughs> is now a veteran. Sarah Kane of CHML News Department. Thanks for doing this. And I learned, actually, just before the show that you two, I didn't know if you guys had met each other, but Sarah, you knew this guy. Yeah. Yeah. He was a former professor at Sheridan College. Once upon a time, yeah. Yeah. Of, of you? Of me. Wow. Yeah. What kind of mark did first, you get? First, pretty good, actually. Yeah, and he was a hard marker, let me tell you. <laughs> really? Yes. He, yeah. he was, yeah. I got criticized for that occasionally. <laughs> yeah. What was the course? Storytelling and research, which was actually the very first class I walked into. Mm. And uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a hard one. That's for sure. So what did you what did he do for storytelling? What was the uh, what like what did you learn? Does you just do you just have to learn to write and tell a good story? And he graded you on that or how did you do it? Well, actually, I think it was the funny enough. I think it was the storytelling class that we had to do obviously research and he one of the best things that Scott did was this research project where he sent the entire class out to find out everything they possibly could about him and his life like dig up the skeletons so his wife yeah, his colleagues the best or worst project ever <laughs> for us it was for us it was fun but for for him and his family and colleagues I'm not so sure and did they find real stuff about you uh, yeah, some of them did. Yeah, some of them did. But uh, I had uh, others who were handed in papers with pictures. There were three guys named Scott Urquhart in town at the time. And they handed me uh, stuff with pictures of the other Scott Urquharts and said, we found this picture of Scott. <laughs> I'm thinking, I stand in front of you once a week. Oh, you know, obviously, you're not seeing it. No. The internet is a tremendously interesting place. I've, I've done the yeah. same thing. Uh, I was speaking at a university class, and the professor before I came said, Scott Radley is going to be coming. Here's your assignment for next week. Write a one-page profile from everything you can discover. And I got to tell you, it was startling what I learned about myself that didn't exist because there are other <laughs> Scott Radleys. I had been a Anglican minister at one point, apparently, <laughs> and I was uh, this and that and the other. It was just, it was, it was bizarre and never trust the internet. Yeah, as blindly, a primary source as of a, research. Blindly, yeah. never yes. just say, hey, it's on the internet. It must be true. <laughs> 
Uh, that would be a really, really bad idea. Uh, let's move along, however. We have, um, we have a lot to get to this hour, a lot of stuff that we couldn't get to the first hour. And let me start with this, because last night I had Susan Claremont on here. We were chatting about the Robert Badgero trial that is going to get started, the fourth Robert Badgero trial. He's, he's being tried for a fourth time for first-degree murder, and that's fourth plus an appeal. So he had he was convicted the first time, got an appeal, won the appeal, tried again, hung jury, tried again, hung jury. So now we're going back to do it a fourth time. And what I really find interesting about this case, and I talked about it with Susan, but I want to bring you guys in on this, is at what point do we say it's 35 years and it's all these trials and it's lots of money and it's lots of effort and it's time and it's emotion at what point do we actually say in our justice system, honestly, we've done everything reasonable that we can, whether we think he's guilty or not, we've just got to let this be. What do you think? When, when, is that, when does that moment come? Never. Really? Never, yeah. I, I really believe that uh, if the Crown, if they feel that they have uh, strong enough evidence, if they have new evidence especially, or if there was evidence excluded that shouldn't have been, which seems to be the argument in this case at least, um, then yeah, I would hate to think that uh, a murderer goes free just because we couldn't be bothered to, to pursue it anymore. Yeah, that was exactly my point. I mean, how can you call it a justice system or justice if you're not actively pursuing you know, this case to the bitter end if there are reasons and there are tidbits and things left untouched that you need to explore? as painful as that may be. Yeah, and and it would be. Uh, I mean, first, well, in many cases, it would be more painful. I suppose in this case, so it's been so long, you've had witnesses that, as Susan explained, have died. You now have transcripts that are going to be read in because they don't exist anymore. Uh, I didn't realize until an hour ago, Scott, you actually have a connection to this case. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back to uh, testify in this case for the fourth time. And, um, as a witness, as, as a, a witness, as yeah. a, but as a, like as a witness to something that happened, or as a journalist, as a witness to something that didn't happen, and yes, as a journalist, um, it's kind of funny. My my testimony consists of saying, "No, we didn't cover the story on the, <laughs> on the day in question." But uh, yeah, as small as the role is, it takes me longer to drive down there, park the car, and go in, you know, than it does to actually testify. But as small as that part is. Um, if they ask me to do it 10 times, I'll come back 10 times because that's the price you have to pay for somebody to get a fair trial. And to me, that's worth the effort. So here's the flip side of it, though, and this is the uncomfortable flip side of it because we like, whether we, we tell people, we say that we believe in completely fair justice. We say that you are innocent until proven guilty. We say that. We're really good at saying that. We're not as good at actually believing that. More often than not, when someone goes on trial, our default position is, oh, yeah, of course, he, you know, he's on trial. He must be guilty. And I don't know this case very well. Robert Badgero may, in fact, be guilty. But what if he isn't? Sarah, what if, what if this is now a guy who's having to go to trial for the fourth time for a murder that he didn't commit. This is now a huge... Now, again, I'm not... For those who are listening and saying, what are you talking about? I don't know if he is or isn't. The courts don't can't decide if he is or isn't. What if he's not? This is a huge part of his life now, most of his adult life that has been tied up trying to defend himself. So when we keep saying until... And I agree with you. Until we resolve this, that sounds great until you're Robert Badgero if you didn't do it. 
Yeah, certainly this must take a toll. I mean, it, it would take a toll regardless on everyone involved. But again, I, I maintain, I mean, if there's reasonable, you know, if there's evidence or things that are untouched, you have to go to the end with this. And I know that that would be an extremely, you know, exhausting process, but I think it has to happen. Yeah, Robert's probably spent uh, more than half of his life, literally, um, dealing with this hanging over his head. And some people would say, well, that's an unfair burden. Well, uh, until there's a, a definite resolution one way or the other, uh, that's the that's the price you're going to have to pay, I guess. So if, heaven forbid, and this was the last thing I asked Susan yesterday, but heaven forbid there was another hung jury, do you go at it again? Or do you, again, we're talking about, not that not that we sort of didn't do a thorough job. If you have another hung jury at some point, do you have to say, we exhausted what we could do in the justice system. We simply, we don't have the witnesses anymore. We, the time, too much time has passed. We've done all we can. Or do you say, no, nope, we're going to keep trying until we get a verdict. We are going to keep pursuing this. Well, I think you're right. It, it's not necessarily the verdict that, that is the question here. It's have we done everything we can do to pursue this? And if we get to the end of that road and say, look, there is nothing more we can do, then perhaps it's time to say, okay, um, we have no prospect of conviction here and uh, a fifth trial would serve no purpose. But if there is a chance, and as they say in, in this, uh, you know, genre, this version of the trial, uh, fourth version of the trial, there is apparently new evidence to be introduced. That's a good enough reason to have another trial. So let me again flip this on its head because many people believe that he is guilty. But we don't know. The courts have not decided, so he is innocent until proven guilty. If he were to have, if this trial were to wrap up and it were to come back with a not guilty verdict, so not a hung jury, a not guilty verdict, does the province of Ontario owe Robert Badgero anything? For all the time and all the money and all the effort and all the energy and all the emotion and everything else that went into an adult lifetime of fighting this case. Even even if at the end of this, some people still believe he did it, would the government owe him something? Yeah, you see this with wrongful convictions, but I mean, in this case, it's it's a gray area, really. I mean, here you are going back in time and time again. It's not wrongful conviction per se. It's like a aggressive, I mean, you could maybe, what do you sue for? Aggressive prosecution? unrelenting process. I mean, I don't yeah. know what the word would be. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, isn't that what our crown attorneys are supposed to do is, is to aggressively pursue the, the course of the law wherever they can or whenever they can? I, I don't know. I, yeah, you're right. I, I see definitely uh, how difficult this must have been, especially, as you say, if he's innocent. If he's innocent. And, yeah. And we don't know. We don't know. We, none of us were there. And, and so there are people listening who are saying, why are you wasting time talking about him as if he's innocent? Because I know he's guilty. But you don't know he's guilty. Mm-hmm. And we don't know he's innocent. We don't know. That's why they're having this trial. I, I, I'll be honest with you. The, the thought that keeps coming back, and I, I don't know if this is too obtuse a, a reference, but the thought that keeps coming back is in the play or the movie Les Mis where Javert spends his entire life hunting down Jean Valjean and won't let it go. And, you know, in that case, Jean Valjean was guilty of something, but 
at some point, again, I, I just I have a hard time with this. If you're the family, you want the government to pursue this. You want the crown to pursue this, but you also have. I think there's got to be a limit somewhere. Yeah, I don't would, know where that is. Yeah, you would think, hate to think that it just had being pursued just on, you know, this overwhelming, whether it be public opinion or whatever it may be, that this person is is guilty of something. But it, that doesn't seem to be the case as it comes up time and time again. There's something new. So it has to be actively pursued. And that's a valid reason to have another trial. There's, there is apparently something new. When there is nothing new left and every every appeal, every avenue has been exhausted and there's still no verdict, that's the time perhaps to say, okay, there is no reasonable prospect of, of conviction and um, we're going to have to let this go. But I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, you know. I can see if you're, you're out of witnesses, I mean, so much time has gone by. As Scott says, there's nothing new to, to dig up or to present, then there is a time that you're going to have to, to rest on, on what's already transpired. That's the one other thing, Sarah, that you just mentioned. That's the one other thing that concerns me about this case now. If he's guilty, I want him locked up, and I want him locked up for the rest of his life, as he should be if he's guilty. But, Scott, I'm not trying to insult you, but I'm sure that when you testified in this case for the first time, your hair was a different color. Very much so. It has been. (laughs) So you now, as I said yesterday with Susan, I can't remember what I had for breakfast someday. We are now 35 years down the road, and we're asking witnesses to recall specific details of stuff that, in order to get a conviction to remember, it's, it's little things. It's minor things. And can we trust that even anymore now? Well, there are written transcripts of the, of what has been testified to before, and uh, that certainly forms some memory basis for for witnesses to to draw from. But yeah, I, I can see how you know. Did I have that? Did I have that right when I testified that in the second trial? Or, and or how could you that? possibly correct yourself now? Yeah. How could you know? Yeah. Uh, if you're unsure or, or do, you, do you say, uh, well, I'm unsure now. I, I don't remember it correctly. Uh, it, it's very difficult. And you're right. This is going to be um, a real tightrope for the, for the Crown to walk, uh, especially, as you say, with many, some of the witnesses dead, some of the witnesses uh, not able to testify. I'm lucky. Mine's short and simple. And, I, you know, as bad as my memory is, I, <laughs> there's, I can handle that. But... Yeah. It's, it's, you know why it's so important? It's so important that there be a verdict in this one now, mm-hmm. even though I don't know if, if they can. Because if there isn't, and we get to the point about should we go ahead, you end up with some people saying a guilty man, a murderer went free, mm-hmm. and you have other people saying a guy has been persecuted and prosecuted for his entire adult life needlessly, and you have no resolution to it. I think you need to have some kind of, and that's not why you would convict a person just to wrap it up, but you, it just feels like this one, you need to have some kind of resolution. Yeah. You see that for both parties. I mean, yes. we were talking about this in the newsroom today, that need for closure, whether you're the family of the person who, who went missing and had this terrible fate. Who are fate. all now dead. Yeah. Yeah, which is another point. But, you know, whether you have any kind of recollection of this or any kind of association with it, you, you want to see some kind of resolution. Or if you're the person on the other side, I mean, you certainly don't want to go through life feeling and, and thinking that this is how everything panned out day by day. And really, it's the Supreme Court that, that made the decision on all these things. The Supreme Court, which is the highest authority in our, our land, if we have to have faith in that 
and of the justice system, if, if nothing else. And if the minds uh, of the justices of the Supreme Court say there's reasonable grounds for yet another trial, I think that's a good enough reason to say, okay, let's go ahead. I hope you're right. I mean, I really, I, I, I really think it would be, is the right word frustrating? I don't think frustrating is a strong enough word if we go through this whole exercise again and end up right back where we were. I, and, and I just, I don't even know what the right word is, but it would be just, I don't know. I, I don't know what the word is. It, there has to be a resolution at some point. Yeah, you would hope. Yeah. You would hope. Yeah, you you would really, hope. You, you would hope. Quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back with Sarah and Scott after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Sarah Kane. Scott Urquhart in studio with the brightest panel in Hamilton Radio. Interesting, interesting, I say that a lot, but interesting story in the Globe and Mail today. The minister responsible for drawing up a national housing strategy, I'm reading from the paper, the minister responsible for drawing up a national housing strategy says he and other senior cabinet members are having extensive discussions about how Ottawa should act to bring Canada's housing market under control. Jean-Yves Duclos says he is in direct and intense contact over these issues with Finance Minister Bill Morneau and Revenue Minister Diane Laboutier as the government prepares for Monday's return of Parliament. So essentially what I think he's saying and what the article goes on to explain is the government is debating right now specifically because of the crazy prices in Vancouver and Toronto at the two extremes. The government is debating whether they should inject themselves and infuse themselves somehow into this to affect the housing prices and have an impact, stick their thumb in the pie of the housing market and see if they can do something to bring housing prices down. Sounds great on the face of it because everybody wants to buy a house and all the people who are young now who can't pay for a house in Toronto, hey, great, you know, no longer it's a million bucks. But is it, Sarah, is, is this something we want? Do we want our government tinkering with the, the, the system, the, the housing system and the, the prices and the way things go and the free market enterprise and all the rest of that stuff? Oh, goodness. That seems like a bit of a loaded uh, question. I really don't want them to touch it necessarily. Things are bad enough as it is. Yeah, are, are you looking for a home or have you bought one, sir? No, and, and that's the thing. You talk about Toronto when you talk about Vancouver, but what about right here? Spilling over, for sure. Yeah, Spilling I mean, over. Hamilton, Burlington, if you look on a, a map of houses up for sale in Burlington now, $700,000 is what you're going to basically yep. <laughs> see. No, there's no so. doubt. It's There's no doubt that the prices are zany. Scott, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Like I've said many times, if if my wife and I had to go out, Marie and I had to go out and buy the house we have now uh, at this time, we just couldn't afford it. We couldn't do it. So, yeah, the, the prices are crazy. But I, I'm more curious as to find out why Ottawa feels it's necessary to get involved in this. Are they, are they hoping to fend off another housing bubble like mm-hmm. the one that hit the States in the 2008? Or? They're pointing mostly, it seems, to the Toronto and Vancouver markets, Vancouver in particular, where there's a lot of speculators who are from offshore coming in and bringing offshore money in to buy up the houses, and that drives the prices up. And, you know, okay, and, and on, again, on the face of it, great. 
you know, if Canadians, Canadians should be able to buy Canadian homes. We want that. We don't just want someone in some foreign land to buy up because he's got billions of dollars, 50, 60, 70 homes, and then turn around and charge a fortune for them. That's, that seems wrong. But what if the government gets involved? I, 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 I hate to point out the obvious, but occasionally governments get involved in things and it doesn't go quite as planned. <laughs> what if the government gets involved in this and housing prices are affected far more than they anticipated they might have been? So people have their retirement, their investments, their, they've put lots of money into their homes and suddenly the prices go <whistles> and they go down a lot more than the percent or two or 10 they were hoping. What happens then? Well, I mean, I think there's always a, a risk of that in any investment, whether it's real estate or, or any other investment. There's always a risk of loss. But uh, you're talking about the offshore But do money. you want to inspire? Do you want to intentionally do that is what I guess I'm saying? Because that's what they're saying. We want to intentionally control or bring down housing prices. That's all. You're right. That's always a risk of an investment. But we don't have governments saying we're going to Intruding try to that. do that. Yeah. No, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Um but to, back to the point about foreign investment, uh, I'm my understanding of it is that uh, several condo developments in, in Toronto, major condo developments, are um, are owned by Chinese investors, and in China, real estate is one of the few things that wealthy Chinese can buy and put their their money into. They don't have a a stock market like the you know the New York Stock Exchange or, or anything like that to invest in. But real estate is a possibility. And there are literally empty cities in China that were built uh, on this, this speculation and have no, no people living in them. We saw some of these during the Beijing Olympics right, as far exactly. back as 2008. Yeah. yeah. And, and so perhaps they're, they're hedging their bets by putting their money into major Canadian cities, major cities all over the world where people are still moving in and looking for houses. Yes, it drives the housing market up question is, if the Chinese investments in China, if they all go, if they collapse, does that, you know, cross the ocean and drag our economy to the bottom too? Maybe that's why Ottawa is involved. I, that, that's the burning question for me. Why are they involved and why do they feel this is necessary? The, well, it, you know, that's, that's a valid point that you don't want to have another market take down your market. And, and that's, 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 that's a very good point. But the other side of this, and again, let me just get back because my, my, initial, my initial thought on this was, okay, so if the government, any government, starts to tinker with this and starts to change it, uh, Sarah, I mean, I know you didn't, but we're going to use you as an example. Sure. Sarah Kane just went out and bought a house that 10 years ago might have been $300,000, but the market has gone berserk and now it was a $600,000 house and you've put down everything you have pretty much to buy that house. And there's a lot of people who fall into that category in the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. The government gets in and starts tinkering with the housing industry and prices go down and suddenly your house returns to a $300,000 value. You are screwed. Yeah, not going to be too happy with that one. But not only not happy, financially you're in a complete <laughs> mess now because the equity, the value of your home yeah. doesn't exist anymore. So you, when you start playing around with this thing that whether we like the prices or not, it has occurred somewhat naturally. Yeah, you'd like to think that the market would somehow regulate itself and this kind of, you know, the free whole free market capitalism idealism. But I mean, 
it's hard to say whether there would be a place for the government to to intervene. I certainly wouldn't want that to happen. I mean, if I finally was in a position to to purchase a home, then yeah, that would be a disaster. Does this have anything to do with consumer debt? Do you think, Scott, that uh, uh, you know Ottawa is so worried about the degree of consumer debt, out which there, is very, very high. Yeah, very high in Canada. That uh, they're feeling that what's going on in the real estate market right now is is just another risk that we really don't need right now. We saw what happened in the states eight years ago, mm-hmm. a decade ago, mm-hmm. and I mean, although I don't. Everything I've ever heard, and I am not an economist, everything I've heard is Canada is not in the same kind of situation. There's different rules, there's different things that have been going on. We're not in the position where you're going to have, well, in the situation we're in right now, we're not going to have all kinds of people having to bail out on their homes. But again, what if the value of their home, if you've got a $500,000 mortgage and your house is only worth 300,000 now, what happens to you? You're stuck. Yeah. You're stuck, and then if you lose your job, or if your job changes, or if you, you don't have survive. the money, <laughs> then you end up in the position that we have in the states. So, isn't that life, though? I mean, isn't that life? Well, you're taking a risk every time you buy a house, for sure. You're taking a yeah. risk every time you make any kind of a major investment. Absolutely, right? but yeah. but you're doing it. Are you not doing it? The risk is based on the platform that you are that you know. Yeah, you don't in want other the words, rules to change. You in don't middle, want yeah. exactly. You you're making a, a calculated move based on the rules that you know, and if the rules suddenly change, that seems like it's kind of. I know you're. Tr- I know the government is trying to be fair and trying to help, but that seems like it's making it unfair for some to make it more fair for others. It's interesting. There's this article in one of the papers in the last week or so about two engineers, a couple basically celebrating the fact that they never purchased a home and never engaged in that kind of risk anyways. They just didn't want to do it. Instead, they traveled the world. They had, you know, this I income. I read that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, this little pocket that they could they could take from, and, and they felt positive about that. So it's interesting, that kind of mentality switching where it was it was very laid out in the past that you would get a home, you, you know, you get married, you have a family, but... It seems to kind of be changing as well. And maybe you can you can shed some light on this because it's my understanding uh, that a lot of millennials today don't want the sort of life that their parents had. My my nephew is a licensed architect in Toronto, and uh, he's just started his own firm. Um, he has a total of three clients, and he's deliriously happy. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want any more than three clients. Three clients, he figures, is enough to do whatever he wants to do with the money without having to work, you know, ridiculously hard. He's not interested in, in being a multimillionaire. He's not interested in buying the big fancy house and all that sort of stuff. This suits him. Yeah, that kind of materialism maybe is a it's, bit by the wayside. It's a different viewpoint. Different values kind of coming to the forefront maybe. Yeah. Yes. You know, I mean, if the government's going to inject itself, all you can hope is... And again, I go back to my point that I made right off the top. All you hope is that the intent, the intent, the the result they intend to create is actually what happens. And the problem is that so often doesn't seem to be the case with something that government gets involved with. Mm-hmm. That I'm not saying everything government gets involved with is bad. I'm not saying that. I tend to lean towards lesser government, but I, there are things governments do very well. But there seem to be enough times that we say, let's tinker, let's do this. <laughs> 
And then suddenly something happens. You go, wow, never saw that coming. Yeah. Yeah, because the outcome is unpredictable. Even even to experts, I think, yeah, the outcome is yeah. unpredictable. And you talked about millennials, and that's a great point because I think in a lot of ways that's who this is trying to protect. Mm-hmm. You're trying to say, hey, millennials, you someday can afford to buy a house. But if the housing market were to be impacted and tweaked and fiddled around with, all the Gen X people, all the baby boomers who have their money wrapped up in their house, who many of them are saying, my retirement is going to be selling this house and a lot of it and then moving to something smaller and living off it. If that is cut way in half, you now you've helped the millennials, but you've thrown the other groups under the bus. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens if, if the millennials don't want to buy your house anyway? That's a whole yeah. other thing. <laughs> you know, you're, you're banking on selling your house for a big price for your retirement. If nobody wants to buy it, then what? You know who are the luckiest people on the pl- in well, maybe not on the planet, but in North America right now? The people who right now have a really nice house that are retired and want to downsize and can find a much smaller place. Because if you're selling a nice place now, mm-hmm. you're golden. Who knows what it's going to be in 10 years? We know what it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Prices are way up. If you are selling and getting out of the market or almost out of the market now, man, you are... Good luck to you. Put a gold star beside your name for the timing on that one because you are in great shape right now. Yeah, both my boyfriend and I have heard that from our parents. I mean, looking at their houses and they're like, man, like, what should we do now? And we do want to, you know, downsize in the next few years. And I've made X amount on this house just in the last like year or two. So this is this is fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic, but, you but know, yeah. yeah, long as but, you can find. A and buyer. then where are you gonna? And, and then on the on the flip side, depending on where you are and what you would get for it, it's like, well, yeah. what can I even afford now? Exactly, <laughs> you have to live somewhere. Yeah. You have to live somewhere, so you can sell it, and your house has gone up in value. But the little house you were going to buy or the is apartment now, has also gone up, yeah. gone up in value. Yeah, it is. Ah, uh, oh, geez, you know, it's. I feel. I mean, I've got kids who are in the millennial category and whatever is coming after that. And, and I mean, I feel worried for them because of the prices of houses, but I also feel worried for the people who are the people who are retiring now, if the house market were to go, because, you Well, know, there's a cycle to this, maybe, Scott, because uh, I remember when I was uh, about 22 years old or so, um, my mom had a house and she was terribly worried about whether I would ever be able to own a house because she was paying- Even a 20, back then they were thinking that. A 21% interest rate oh, yes. at that time, right? Oh, you guys will never be able to afford a house. Well, Always works out yeah. somehow. <laughs> yeah. Everyone just needs to buy one of those what are they, those little tiny homes on, yeah. on a trailer that's now 140 yeah. square feet and you have a giant Great Dane in there along yeah. with you and your <laughs> wife and your four kids. And it's a little tight, but you know, we can all live in there. It's cozy. Yeah, cozy. It's cozy. It's great. real estate jargon. Yeah. It's great in the winter, not so much in the summer when the heat gets up. Quick break here on the Scott Radley Show. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. I should ask you this before we move on, but um, and I I hesitate to because I don't want to stir up any bad feelings, but when you heard that CHCH was relaunching uh, weekends, were you grinding your teeth? No, uh, I've got a... um... I've got a philosophy about that. There, there are still people at that station who I worked with, who I respect, who I care for very much. And there are a lot of people in this city that I think deserve to have a decent news station. 
Um, you know, I, I always respected the viewers. I always appreciated any, you know, support that they gave me, and I felt that they deserved better than what we were giving them. So, no, on the one hand, I, I heard that and I thought, good, that's a good thing. Now, the other part of that is, you know, how, how much <laughs> – it's, it's, it's like James Brady when he got shot with President Reagan and they, they went to ask him how he felt after uh, – uh, who was it that shot Reagan? I can't even remember. Hinkley? Hinkley, yeah. How, how, was, how did he feel after Hinkley got parole? And he said, well, I'm okay. Um, I don't want him to win the lottery or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my, kind of my feeling. I kind of feel the same way. Well, bravo for having a good attitude towards yeah. it then anyway. There is, um, we know that some fast food places that traditionally have been fast food places have been trying to branch into the more upscale thing and vice versa. We've got a lot of nice upscale places that are branching into the burgers now, the you know gourmet burger. It's a little like a mishmash of everyone's going in a different direction. But in Paris now, a McDonald's has opened that does not serve Big Macs, doesn't serve McNuggets, doesn't serve French fries. It is just a cafe. Just to go in and have your McDonald's coffee and cappuccino and Whatever else. It's a Mick Cafe. It's a Mick Cafe, but it's li- <laughs> they call that here now with yeah. something. But it's legitimately like it's just. <laughs> is it? D- do we want to have this kind of melding of all of our restaurants and foods, or do we like the idea that you know what? If I go to that place, I know what I'm getting, and if I go to that place, I know I'm paying a little more, but I know what I'm getting. Do we like? everything mushing into one thing where it's all a surprise when we show up and who knows what I'm getting or do we Sarah do we want to say I'm going to that restaurant because I know exactly what I get when I walk into that place I like the element of uh, surprise but I I definitely there are restaurants that I I go to or there's an item on the menu and I just know it's there and if it's besides something else that maybe I haven't gone to I mean you fall back on what you love right but if you walk in Scott if you have a hankering for a burger Mm -hmm. Do you want to say, I know, at least I know where I have to go? I don't have to drive all over the city going, okay, where, hold on, where, where are the actual burgers at today? I know I can go to this place or this place or this place. Or do you say, hey, no, I'm, I'm good with that. I want to walk in and I want it to be a, a mystery on the menu board when I come in. <laughs> well, Roll, spin the wheel of, of fast food <laughs> Mystery today. meat. No, no, Not that's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. You know, um, I, I don't know. There's two sides to that, I guess. In the one case, McDonald's once upon a time was that was known for that brand consistency right across the world. And in the long run, that kind of got them into trouble because it got to be boring and stale and old. So I understand that restaurants have to evolve. They have to change. On the other side of that coin is the new Tim Hortons, mm. owned by a multinational company, that's changing rapidly. And I don't know about you, but I've run into a lot of people who really, really miss the original old-fashioned Tim Hortons and its menu, and they're not all that keen on the changes. Yeah, just go up to the second floor of store number one, and you can see a, a uh, an old museum-like version of Tim Hortons' uh, old stores. There is one. They've got a setup there. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, people want good coffee and good donuts from Tim Hortons. But they, they don't want to see. Yeah, and right, they, they know that that they yeah. know that that used to be the that case. That used to be, yeah. But now they see taters and Greek salad and yeah. who knows what. Yeah, all kinds of, of. It's like going to any other restaurant in some ways because the, the, their menu has been so varied. Uh, what is the, what is their identity now, really? Well, here's from uh, from Fox News. Here is a list of instead of burgers. Diners can enjoy club sandwiches or toasted bagels with salmon, chicken salad, or even pastrami. 
The eatery also serves assorted pastries, salad, and soup. And then, of course, ver- various forms of coffees with... Uh, uh, can you have a barista at McDonald's? Can, I mean, <laughs> can you... Can, can you can but this you... sounds like a separate entity. Like, yeah. is it its own standalone store? Yes, it's and it's called McCafe, just like I you said. I think people could accept that. As long as it was not McDonald's. If it's not McDonald's, it's McCafe. You know what you're getting at McCafe. Then you're getting more cafe-style so cl- bistro meals. But so if you want a enough. burger, yeah, I think that, that sets it apart. Tim Hortons, you know, that example is everything all in one. Or what are you getting? You don't yeah. even know anymore. Yeah, I, it's, it's just, it's to me, it's a very interesting thing that with what we're saying, that, Scott, because maybe exactly for the reason you're saying that people got used to it. We've got to keep, and I don't know if it was that or if it's because shareholders wanted higher and higher Returns. profits. So we got to have more and more options because we got to lure you in instead of everyone coming to here for coffee and there for a sandwich. We got to get everything here. Yeah, it's a viciously competitive industry. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal. But yeah. I just, it seems to me funny that that we've gone from a point where McDonald's was the kind of thing that a couple times a year after a hockey game, I would get taken to. Because it was, a, you know, it was, mm-hmm. you know, it was McDonald's. It was, we would go there and, <laughs> and you knew exactly what you were getting. Yeah. It was late night after 16 beers eatery for me. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's the drive-thru. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hopefully not the drive-thru. <laughs> and now I walk in, if I walked into this McCafe in Paris, honestly, I, I'm, it looks very nice. It sounds like the menu is very nice, but I have no idea. Yeah. What yeah. I was walking into. Uh, anyway. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.